Well, three weeks ago, we started a new series looking at these five Latin phrases that you see up on the screen. Uh, These were developed uh, way back in the 1500s, in the time of Martin Luther and the Reformation. Uh, Luther and others had become fed up with how the church was dealing with doctrine, uh, particularly uh, the doctrine that they referred to as indulgences, where as long as you had enough money to pay the church, you could be forgiven of your sin. And Luther knew that based on scripture, this was not what God had intended. And so he developed these 95 theses uh, and nailed them to the door of the Wittenberg Castle. And uh, this document actually would become the foundation for the Protestant Reformation. Uh, Their goal, these, these reformers, their goal was to go all the way back to the beginning of the church and figure out how did God intend the church to be um, and how is that different from how the church had become in that time. So out of these, um, this 95 Theses and all of this work, these five essential doctrines, which weren't necessarily new, they're, they're based on Scripture, but um, they had been kind of lost and forgotten, and so they were brought back to the surface. Uh, the first one is called Sola Scriptura, and that means Scripture alone. Scripture alone is our ultimate authority. It has the final say uh, whenever we're looking for understanding. Um, it's, it's inspired by God. It's useful for so many many different things. Um, It's precise and in its original form, completely without error. Um, And we also spent time on the fact that this is the story of God from start to finish. It's not the story of Paul. It's not the story of you, insert your name. It's a story of God primarily from start to finish and how he loved us, how he created us lovingly, how he formed mankind, and how he created a plan to rescue us from our sin. Two weeks ago, we looked at the second one called sola gratia. This is grace alone. Grace alone. So we discovered there are actually two different types of grace found in the Bible, something called common grace, which is given to all mankind. Uh, This is where it rains or their sun, you know. Everybody experiences life as they're alive, you know. The breath, it all comes from God, whether you've accepted him or not. That's common grace. Saving grace is a different thing. Um, It's given to those that accept God's free gift of salvation, and God is the only one that can offer that type of grace. And, and, and that sola gratia, that saving grace, teaches us of how complete and utterly hopeless we are on our own. And without the grace of God reaching down to us, offering us this gift of salvation, we are lost and hopeless. But at the same time, the fact that that grace exists means that we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be worried because of the same grace. It's a two-sided coin. Uh, the old hymn, Amazing Grace, that says, "'Twas grace that taught our hearts to fe- my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." It has a two-part component there. Last week, we looked at sola fide, faith alone, and the fact that salvation of the soul is by faith alone and not earned by good works. Salvation is not earned by the doing of good works, but the saved person gladly does good works in response to having been saved. And so today, as we move on and we come to our fourth sola, sola, uh, solus Christus, Christ alone. Christ alone. Uh, we need, we're going to be reminded that this sola is strongly attached to the last two, 
sola gratia, and sola fide. And we find them in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. We've looked at this passage every single week so far. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. And so these three solas in the middle of the five tell us that God saves us by his grace alone, And that grace is activated by faith alone. And that faith is directed toward the person and the work of Jesus Christ alone. I mentioned earlier that the Reformation's goal was to direct Christianity back to the original message of Jesus and to the early church. And whenever you want to look at what did the early church look like, In our day and age, it's easy. You just go back and look at the book of Acts. I'm going to have you actually open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 4, this morning. Uh, We're going to look at some other verses here in a little bit, but this passage I wanted to direct you to, if you have your apps, uh, you can open them there. And we'll get back to Acts 4 here in a second. But in Acts chapter 2... If you want to kind of trace the history of how the church started to to begin, you can find 120 disciples that had been in this upper room right after the Holy Spirit was sent to them. Uh, This was God's promised comforter. It's the third person of the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised he would leave with them. He said, I got to go right now, but I'm going to leave with you a comforter a spirit that is going to empower you. It's going, he's going to uh, help you be bold for me. And so in Acts 2, you see that. These 120 disciples, they're leaving this room, and they're empowered by the Spirit in a unique way. And through these men in Acts chapter 2, you find about 3,000 men that come to salvation in that time. And they place their faith in Jesus through the ministry of these men who had just been empowered. In Acts chapter 3, you can find Peter... Peter, who was a fisherman, by the way, not a, not a professional preacher, not a professional pastor, none of those things. Peter had been a fisherman. And in chapter 3, you find him up in front of a huge crowd preaching Jesus Christ to them. In Acts chapter 4, in the beginning, it's, it's Peter and John who are both preaching. Again, John, not, not a professional in any stretch of the imagination, And by this time, in the beginning of Acts chapter 4, around 5,000 men have now placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And Peter and John, they're starting to gain some attention. Now, if you remember, during Jesus' ministry, when he would preach, when he would speak from from God, (laughs) he gathered a little bit of attention around him, right, from from the religious folks. And that's what's happening in Acts chapter 4. Peter and John are starting to gain some of the same attention, to the point where they are taken by force and thrown into prison. And this all came on the heels of Peter healing a lame man, a man who couldn't walk. Peter is walking past this man, and he heals him in the name of Jesus. And in Acts chapter 4, verse 5, let's pick up the story. Says the next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them by what power or what name did you do this? 
Loaded question. I don't know if they wanted the answer, but they asked the question. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, ouch, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. What an amazing scene that must have been. These uneducated, ordinary men are being used by God to preach the gospel and even to heal this poor man, this lame man. And lots of people are coming to faith through their ministry. And, and this, this would be something to celebrate, you would think. And, and it is, by us, it wasn't celebrated in that day. Instead of the religious community throwing a party because there seems to be a revival happening, Peter and John are thrown into jail. And we just read how this doesn't slow them down. They just have a new audience to preach to. <laughs> Right? They take their opportunity. And Peter doesn't pull any punches, it says, as the Holy Spirit empowers him to speak. And he points the finger directly at all of those listening. Not just the religious folks, but also all of Israel, as he mentioned. He even refers back to an Old Testament prophecy from Psalm 118 when he describes how the coming Messiah would, would come and be rejected. And, and he's again making the parallel that, you know, that passage back in Psalm 118 um, that I'm referencing right now, because all these religious people would have known this passage. He says that person that's being talked about there is Jesus Christ. He's the Messiah. And you rejected him. Now, there's been a lot of discussion over the years. Um, you know, we're, we talk about being in New Testament times um, as believers. And so there's been a lot of talk of, you know, is the Old Testament really useful? Does it apply to us anymore here today? I mean, once Jesus came to earth and he died and rose again, he fulfilled the law, right? So now we don't have to even probably look at the Old Testament. That's not, it's not that simple. It's not that simple at all. We actually need to know and understand that the Old Testament actually consistently points to Jesus. And on a sermon where we're talking about Jesus Christ alone, he didn't just show up in Luke chapter 2 in the, in the stable. Okay, That's not where Jesus originated. Jesus has been part of the Trinity forever. He's been around forever, and he's mentioned in the Old Testament many times. So here's just a quick uh, list of Jesus found in the Old Testament, okay? But way back in Genesis chapter 3, you see the Lord talk about how the offspring of Eve would crush the head of the evil one down the line. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. If you've seen Passion of the Christ, there's a very... Um, amazing scene right at the beginning of the movie where he stomps on that serpent's head as it approaches his foot. It's an awesome view. 
That was Genesis 3. Genesis 18, Jesus appears to Abraham the pilgrim, and he appears to him as this weary traveler who's looking for a place to stay and a meal. In Genesis 32, he appears to Jacob the deceiver as a wrestler who puts him in a submission hold. (laughs) In uh, Joshua chapter 5, he appears to Joshua the commander. He appears to him as the captain of the Lord's army. In Psalm 16, um, and actually Peter references this in a sermon found in Acts chapter 2, he references Psalm 16, but Psalm 16 speaks of the resurrection of the Messiah. And that's quoted, and like I said, by Peter later, and it's explained further in Acts 2. Isaiah 53, the entire chapter is a, a beautiful prophecy of the suffering that Jesus would endure for us. And then in Daniel 3, a famous story of three Hebrew friends who were in a fiery furnace. And Jesus appears in that moment as a companion, a fourth person inside the flames. And you might remember that story. Those three men came out of that furnace unscathed and didn't even smell like smoke. Now, if you ever sit around a campfire, you know how easy it is to walk away smelling like smoke, right? They didn't even have the smell of smoke on their clothes. And so Jesus is well represented in the Old Testament. All of those spots where he specifically appeared to people are called theophanies. And there are others, uh, but those are the the main ones there. But we won't do the scriptures justice. Remember, sola scriptura, all of scripture is inspired. All of it is a story of God. And so if we just throw out the Old Testament, we're not doing um, the scriptures justice. But let's focus back in on Acts 4 for a moment. Acts 4, verses 11 and 12. The Spirit was telling Peter what to say when he quoted this psalm. It's Psalm 118, 22. It's definitely a reference to the Messiah, if you go back and look at the, um, the context. Um, and he made it clear that the members of the council that he was speaking to in this moment who were questioning him were the builders in this uh, statement that he's making. He says, you are the, build, you are the stone the, that you builders rejected. He's referring to them as the builders in this moment. They had rejected God's stone, who was Jesus, the Son of God. Now, the image of a stone wasn't new. Uh, these men who are experts in the Old Testament scriptures, they, they knew that the rock, a rock was a symbol of God. Uh, the prophet Daniel actually used the rock to picture the Messiah and the coming of his kingdom onto the earth. And the Jews stumbled over this rock. You'll see that mentioned in other passages that this stone was a, it caused some to stumble. They couldn't understand. And just as Psalm 118 predicted, this was starting to happen at this moment in Acts. However, to those who have trusted in him, to those that understand that Jesus is the Messiah, he had actually not become a stone to be rejected or stumbled over. He had become the cornerstone, the most important piece of the structure. Not just one out in the middle that makes you trip or that you want to throw out, No, the actual one, everything else is built upon. 
And so Peter goes on to explain in his response that Jesus is not only the stone, but he's also the Savior. In fact, Peter saw in the healing of this beggar, he, he sees this picture of a spiritual healing that comes through salvation. The word healed that he uses in Acts 4, 9, it's actually the same Greek word that is translated as saved in Acts 4, 12. So he uses the same word to talk about two different pieces of this story. And that just tells us that Jesus alone is that great physician. He can heal mankind's greatest sickness. And I'm not talking about cancer. I'm talking about sin. Peter also, he wasn't just talking to these religious leaders. He specifically addressed all the people of Israel. And as he spoke uh, this message, um, he knew this was going out exclusively to the Jews in that moment, right? It was the religious people. It was also all of Israel. And even in Psalm 118, if we took the time, and we won't today, you'll see that um, this passage is speaking of a future national salvation for Israel down the line. But the fact that Peter was referencing the Old Testament, the the fact that we can find Jesus present throughout the entirety of Scripture, it tells us that the Old Testament is still useful to us, even though we're in New Testament times. We need to remember the entire Bible is the story of God. And I found it's actually good practice, especially when reading the Old Testament passages, to look for Jesus within all of the pages I was just thinking as I was writing this, um, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and, and how that's kind of, it, it made me laugh a little um, of the fact that we have something called red letter Bibles. What do the red letters mean in those? Yeah, yeah. Shouldn't the entire thing be read? I'm not going to make fun of those people that developed the idea of the red letter Bible, but this is, these are all the words of God. <laughs> Jesus is God, right? These are all of his words to us. Now, I, I like the red letters because it does call out, especially in the Gospels, when you know, Jesus, during his ministry on earth, he's talking back and forth, and it helps us see that conversation. But it just struck me as a little bit funny uh, this week. But if Jesus is the chief cornerstone and the only name by which we can say, be saved, why has man always struggled with that concept? Why is it? We've talked about this the last couple of weeks. Because man always wants to add something. That's just our natural. We want to add something. You know, we want to add the church. It's Jesus plus the church, going to church, Right? Or it's, it's Jesus plus baptism, or Jesus plus communion, or uh, it's Jesus plus Mary, or Jesus plus the saints. In fact, the reformers came from a tradition where there were many go-betweens, many mediators between God and man. And Mary was considered the greatest, Mary the mother of Jesus. But the saints were also looked to for guidance. And back in this time when these uh, five solas were being developed, there was still um, difficulty for them to remove these thoughts from their minds. They, they recognized that only God should be worshipped, but that worship of Mary, that looking to Mary for hope, was so ingrained in their religious culture that it was very difficult for them to separate the two. Some never actually made a full break from that. 
Uh, however, the reformers did end up finally all agreeing at least that Mary was not a co-savior. That's good. <laughs> and that salvation only comes from Jesus and that only God was to be worshipped. So those are good things to agree on, but there was this difficult break. 1 Timothy 2.5 is, is the main passage that was very instrumental in them coming to this agreement. For there's one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. I mean, you can't get much more plain than that. Um, I didn't mention one big thing uh, that man has always tried to add to our salvation. Uh, we've talked about this for two weeks now, and that's our good works. Those are the good things that we do. And as we've talked about this in depth the last two weeks, we need to continue to understand there is nothing that we can do to add to or earn our salvation or even brownie points. There's a few passages that really can hammer this home. Uh, Hebrews 10, 11 through 14 uh, says, Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, speaking of Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. See, when Jesus died on the cross, he completed the entire amount of the work required for salvation. There's nothing we could ever do, not even the smount the smallest amount of work that could ever add a, just a hair of value to his sacrifice. It, it's not Jesus plus anything. It's Jesus plus nothing. I love this verse in John nineteen thirty. This is Jesus from the cross. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. I have a feeling a couple months we're going to be looking at that verse again as we come around to Easter time. It is finished. It is finished. I remember being blown away when I first heard what that translation actually meant. It is finished. It's a, it's a word, tetelestai. It's not a word we use in our English language today. But it was used by various people in everyday life back in those times. A servant uh, would use it with his or her master when they were reporting, uh, you know, I've completed the work assigned to me. That's one use of the word. It was also used when a priest was taking a look at a sacrifice because you had to bring the best lamb without, a pr without any problems, right? No broken leg. It had to be the best, the, a perfect lamb. And, and the priest would examine the sacrifice, and when he found it faultless, he would use this word. Also back then, when an artist completed a picture or a writer completed a manuscript, they might use this word. It is finished. And there are aspects of all of these that fit, but I think the most significant meaning of the word tetelestai was used by merchants of the day, those who bought and sold goods. 
And when they would use this word, it meant something closer to the debt has been paid in full. The debt has been paid in full. It was like a receipt. Here, you bought those goods. Here's your receipt proving that you paid for what, would, what had been purchased. And when Jesus gave himself on the cross, he fully met the demands of the holy law. He paid our debt in full. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus completes the picture that God has been painting. It completes the story that he had been writing for centuries. Because of the cross, we have a better understanding of some of these Old Testament prophecies, some of these Old Testament ceremonies and practices. We understand how they were pointing forward to Jesus. And we need to remind ourselves, none of these Old Testament sacrifices could take away sin. All they did was cover the sin temporarily. But it was still an act of God's grace. But this Lamb of God, Jesus, who shed his blood for us, his blood could take away the sins of the whole world. Didn't just cover it. Took them away. His one sacrifice did the work that no amount of bulls No amount of goats or lambs or whatever you want to put in there could accomplish. So earlier we saw these various appearances of Jesus in the Old Testament. During his ministry on earth, Jesus tried to make who he was as clear as as he possibly could to those around him. John 14, 6 says, I am the way and the truth. And the life, not a way, a truth, or a life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me, Solus Christus. Now, to our 21st century ear, um, especially to those outside of the church, this kind of a statement may sound arrogant. It may sound egotistical. And I would just tell you that only God himself could make a statement like that, and he did. And so because of that, we accept it as true. Uh, This passage in John um, 14 is not the only um, isolated incident of him making a claim like this. Uh, Here's some more. Here's some more spots where Jesus is found in the New Testament. We'll just go through these quick. John 3, of course, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, not somebody else, whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. John 6, he refers to himself as the bread of life. The bread of life. He is the one who gives true life. John 7, there's a lot of John passages here. Uh, if, if we believe in him, rivers of living water will flow, but the key there is believing in him. John 10, uh, and, and in other places, he refers to himself as the good shepherd, right? The good shepherd, but he also refers to himself, himself as the gate to the sheep pen, now, this, as I'm looking at this verse this week, I'm just thinking, hmm, I think I might do a whole week on this idea of being sheep. 
You know, the New Testament is full of references of him being the shepherd and we're the sheep and, and the relationship there. So don't be surprised if that comes here in the, in the nearish future. Um, but more than him just being the shepherd, he is the gate that allows the sheep into the pen. Okay, I think there's some symbolism there. He is the way. John 14 says, the truth and the life we just mentioned. John 15, he refers to himself as the vine that is rooted into the ground. He is the vine. You and I as his followers are the branches. Apart from me, he says, you could do nothing. What happens if you cut a branch off of a tree and leave it on the ground? It's going to die. It can't flower anymore. It can't grow. It's done. It's the same with us. He's the vine. We are the branches. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Romans 10 says, If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There are so many other passages. I could have filled screen after screen of passages in which he is called out as the only way. But when we acknowledge that Jesus is who he said he is, we need to understand that saving faith is nothing less than totally relying on him alone. And it's completely separate from human effort of any kind. Paul, the Apostle Paul, was writing a letter to the church in Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Now, brothers and sisters... I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. What he's saying is, here's the gospel. This is the entire gospel in all of its simplicity, church. Don't forget that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. And you will never hear from this pulpit preached anything other than that. Because scripture alone is our authority. And salvation is given to us by the grace of God when we exercise faith in the person of Jesus Christ alone. I would just say once again, if you have never accepted that free gift, man, I'd invite you to do that today. Maybe you're relying on someone or or something else to save you. We need to remember there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved but Jesus alone. He canceled our debt. He paid the bill that had come due for our sin by the shedding of his blood. And he did this for the entire world. He did that for each of us individually. And at the same moment, he simultaneously took away our sin if we would just accept it. And he made a way that we could live in freedom here, as many days as we have, and we don't know how many that is, but we can live in freedom from that old person that we used to be. And that's a beautiful thing, but even more so, we will live in eternity with him, in his presence.
I want to challenge you to remember that the entire Bible is the story of God. And be on the lookout for Jesus in all of its pages. Look for his attributes. Look for his actions, his character. Every time you open the word, he's there. He might not have a physical manifestation in the Old Testament in every story, but you can see the grace of God in in the story that's happening. You can see his loving hand guiding his people, disciplining his people, leading his people. And then again, you also can look for those pre-incarnate appearances where he specifically appeared to others. We need to remember that God saves us by his grace alone, That grace is activated by faith alone. And that faith is directed toward the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. There's nothing we can do to be more acceptable to him. We just need to put our faith in him. And once we are his follower, we respond in worship. We respond by sharing our story with our community, with our friends, our family, once in a while, I even say our enemies. <laughs> our enemies need Jesus, right? Pray for them, at least. Pray for them. That's our job as followers of Jesus. Accept his gift, and now we move forward for him and his mission. Let's pray.